Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. I figured after that lengthy review of the uh, Netflix series Surviving Death, I'd kind of take it easy on myself and do one of my shorter news story episodes this week. But before we start, I just wanted to quickly take care of a couple of corrections. Man, that was a lot of alliteration. Uh, I think they're both pretty minor, but you guys know me. I hate, you know, putting bad information out there. And even if it's a little mistake, I like to correct it or clarify it. So firstly, you might recall probably over a month ago now, I released an episode on the quote-unquote canceling of Gina Carano and Marilyn Manson, myself a longtime Manson fan in full disclosure. And I was discussing some of the disturbing details regarding Manson's alleged treatment of ex-fiance Evan Rachel Wood. And uh, I mentioned how Manson had claimed in an interview for Spin Magazine back in 2009, or with Spin Magazine, that he had supposedly called Wood 155 times in one day, cutting himself with a razor each time. And so you're probably thinking, 155 times? Yeah, that's got to be wrong. Yep, it is. It's actually higher. It's 158 times. Uh, I believe Manson's publicist or rep tried to spin it, no pun intended, spin it, spin it by saying the, uh, the disturbing and outrageous claims he made during that interview because he also mentioned fantasizing about smashing her head in with a sledgehammer uh, were just the exaggerations of a rock star trying to play up his image or something like that, I'm paraphrasing. But I could see it either way. On the one hand, I could see Manson saying things for the heck of it, exaggerating or kind of self-mythologizing. On the other hand, this is someone who was known for self-mutilation back in the day, He used to regularly cut himself on stage, dragging broken bottles across his skin, etc., that kind of thing. And I think as intelligent and thoughtful as Manson is, he does also have an emotionally disturbed side or has his issues. So I could see him cutting himself to get the attention of or to emotionally punish a significant other for, you know, ignoring him or whatever as self-destructive and emotionally immature as that may be. Uh, Was it really 158 times? Who knows? But now on to the other correction. And so a lot of work went into that aforementioned episode, that uh, review of surviving death. I watched the entire series at least three times, I think, taking notes as I went, researching the various topics for myself, etc. And I really tried to go over the episode with a fine-tooth comb before publishing it. And then, and sadly, this is usually the way it goes, after releasing it and listening back to it in my car for quality control, I realized I had made one stupid little error near the beginning. And the funny thing is, it was just something I said during one of my little digressions. It really didn't have much to do with any of the topics covered by the series. I briefly veered off into talking about UFOs and alien life. Because Surviving Death is based on a book of the same name by Leslie Keen, and I was talking about how she had also written a best-selling book about UFOs. And so I briefly alluded to that weird phenomenon back around the time of the New Year, I think, where these man-made, I think it's pretty safe to call them man-made, monoliths were popping up all around the world. There was the one in the Utah desert, 
And then there were a bunch of what I think are safe to call copycats, but I incorrectly referred to them as obelisks. Now, an obelisk can be considered a monolith, but I don't think the monoliths in question were technically obelisks, which are usually defined as being four-sided and kind of tapering up to a pyramidal top or cap. So I was listening back to the episode in my car, and I was like, ah, you gotta be kidding me, man. All that work, you know, an almost three-hour-long episode, and I discover this stupid little mistake in there that's probably gonna be stuck there for all posterity. But hey, what can you do? Well, I guess technically I could go back in there, edit that little section, and re-upload the thing all over again, but I'm not doing that. I'm neurotic, but I'm not that neurotic. Well, okay, technically I probably am that neurotic, but you get my point. But anyway, let's move on to the first news story. So this one's from The Friendly Atheist, and it's by Hemet Mehta himself, and it's dated April 8th. And so it's entitled, Arkansas House Republicans Pass Bill Allowing Creationism in Science Class. The Arkansas State House yesterday voted 72 to 21 in favor of letting public school science teachers, quote unquote, teach creationism as a theory of how the earth came to exist. As if we needed another indication of how little respect Arkansas lawmakers have for students. It was a party line vote with every Democrat against it and every Republican for it. One Democrat and six Republicans didn't vote at all. This is the work of State Representative Mary Bentley, a Republican, who filed HB, and I think HB stands for House Bill, right? HB 1701 last month. And it has some uh, lines from the bill here. Let's see. So uh, line 28, 616-152, creationism. A, a teacher of a kindergarten through grade 12 K-12 science class at a public school or open enrollment public charter school may teach creationism as a theory of how the earth came to exist. Wow. And then B, this section is permissive and does not require a teacher to teach creationism as a theory of, and I think there's a typo here. At first I thought uh, my brain was glitching. But it says, this section is permissive and does not require a teacher to teach creationism as a theory of the earth came to exist. So it's as if their brains have become so stunted by superstition that they're actually devolving and starting to talk like cavemen. Theory of the earth came to exist. I just gave myself the deuce chills, but I had to do that. And my caveman kind of sounds like Frankenstein, but I guess they're kind of interchangeable. And I know, I know. Technically, it's uh, Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein was the scientist. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, and this is uh, Hemant Mehta continuing. The short bill defies or completely ignores the Supreme Court's ruling against the teaching of creationism, since everyone knows it's all about advancing religion instead of teaching credible science. Well, I, I, th I think that's true. He's got it right. As we know, the earth doesn't exist because God poofed it into being a few thousand years ago. The Bible may say that, but the Bible is lying to you. And just to be fair, you know, I do agree with what Hemet made is saying here in spirit, but technically I'm not sure what the Bible says about the age of the earth or, or the universe. I know that over the centuries, certain religious types have tried to calculate the age of the earth using the Bible. For instance, there was James Usher. I remember talking about this way back in the day on the show. 
Uh, he was the Archbishop of Armagh. I think that's how you pronounce it. I remember joking when I first covered it on the show that one of his titles was Primate of All Ireland. And uh, just ironically, it's hard not to chuckle at that. But uh, obviously different usage of the word. But he tried to establish the age of the earth by adding up the lifespans of all of the people in the genealogies of the Old Testament, that kind of thing. But I agree with uh, with Hemet. If you're interested in science, the Bible is probably one of the last books you should be turning to. The one exception might be that there might be some little morsels in the Bible that can give you some insight or clues about life in the ancient world. But uh, as a historical reference, the Bible's pretty bad, too. Um, I think it's more concerned with passing on religious stories than it is with getting the history right. A glaring example that jumps to mind for me is the story of the Exodus. It's a story that seems to be riddled with historical inaccuracies, uh, such as I don't think there's any evidence that the Jewish people were ever actually slaves in Egypt. And that's not me trying to devalue these stories. I have a problem with literal belief, especially when people try to push it on others, uh, with superstition, um, with indoctrination. And this story is a great example. We have people fighting to have creationism taught alongside actual science. Uh, but I understand that religious stories can have a lot of symbolic value. And I know that the story of the Exodus is one that's very important to a lot of Jewish people. A group of people who throughout the centuries, throughout, throughout the millennia, have been through so much. And I, I respect that. I respect the Jewish people, their history. Um, but at the end of the day... Yeah, there's the the scholarly consensus seems to be that there's not a lot of historical basis for the story of the Exodus. And years back on the show, I actually did an episode on the historicity of the Exodus. Um, and uh, at some point, I want to revisit that again. But anyway, back to the story. So it continues. Bentley tried doing this in 2017, too, but got nowhere with it. That bill died in the house. The current version just passed the house. Bentley is a graduate of Harding College, a Church of Christ-affiliated school, so science education isn't in her wheelhouse. It's possible the new bill will breeze through the Republican-dominated state Senate because it purposely avoids mentioning intelligent design or evolution and says teaching creationism is, in italics, optional, but giving teachers that choice doesn't make it okay. It shouldn't be acceptable for a public school teacher to brainwash your kids with utter bullshit during class. Not that Bentley cared. She posted this on Facebook last night. And it shows the post in question, Mary Bentley, state representative. A big thank you to all my colleagues who voted for HB 1701 today, allowing the creation theory to be taught in our public school classrooms. And it's sickening, but of course she's going to gloat about it, you know. And then uh, Hemet wraps things up by saying, Creationism is Christian fiction. It sure as hell isn't science. The only thing this bill would accomplish is inspiring a raft of successful lawsuits against it. Let us hope. And I almost forgot to mention this. I made a little mental note. 
But there is one little caveat. I wouldn't mind uh, teachers telling kids about creationism and passing in a science classroom, just letting them know that there is this alternative belief out there that some people embrace, but it's based on religious belief and not mainstream science. You know, just letting people know in passing. And then you can even go on to nicely explain why the idea that the Earth is only five or 6,000 years old is absolutely batshit crazy. Although, obviously, you don't want to use that exact wording with uh, school children. But on to the next story. And so I have to admit that I'm covering this one just because it's so much fun talking about demons and zombies. I couldn't resist. But apparently, uh, disgraced televangelist Jim Baker had a conspiracy theorist on his show to talk about zombies. I found this story through uh, also through Hemet made as uh, the friendly atheist. But I believe the embedded clip I'm about to play actually comes from Right Wing Watch. Zombies that are on the earth are a disease like any other disease that affects people and they become like zombies. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Forgive me, but that's only part of the story. Zombies, as zombies also have the evil spiritual entity known as demon possession, okay? Because there is no rationale with a zombie. Uh, the best way to explain zombies' bloodlust is this, the appetite of demons expressed through humans. It should be astonishing to people that the richest people in the world, not all of them, but some of them, are into occult ceremonies where they have to drink, you know, blood that's, that's extracted from a tortured child. Now, that's sick, but that's the appetite of demons expressed through humans. The ancient world dealt with monsters, mythological and real. And this is something that is really important to get through. The disease will basically destroy the human defenses. God gave us defenses as humans to resist the devil and he will flee. But when you're inviting or what's the word I want? Embracing abject demon possession, giving yourself over to be inhabitant, be inhabited by the demons who then become your inhabitants. It's a twofold. What I'm saying, Jim, is they can induce zombieism, at least the appetite for human flesh. But at the at the end of the thing, it's both hands, right hand and left hand, and the left hand simply is the evil spiritual possession of that zombie. So the the zombie protocol, and then I think people should say, okay, if this is all wild stuff, why does the military have a manual about it when it happens? Why does the CDC even have anything on their, on their members, Center for Disease Control or Creation? I call it that. That's my opinion. The whole subject of zombies could be just boiled down at one end to a genetically modified human that is no longer human on the level that you and I or a living being is. Then that corpse, that walking and, and animated, there's a better word, it's not living, an animated corpse is possessed by a demonic entity. That demonic entity has knowledge, it has sentiments, it has, how do I say this, a purpose to do nothing else but to destroy. And I think that's the easiest way I can explain it. 
I cut that little depressing right-wing watch jingle off at the end there. Can a jingle be depressing? Jingle is such a fun word. Anyway, um, that clip, uh, you know, is relatively short, roughly three minutes. So maybe there's some surrounding context that's missing. But first, I wasn't sure if they were talking about metaphorical zombies or quote-unquote real zombies. But uh, Baker does mention uh, a kind of zombie disease. Uh, but as the conversation unfolds, they seem to be defining a zombie, at least in this context, as someone who has opened themselves up to demonic influence or more specifically demonic possession. And so you basically have the body of a human being being controlled or puppeteered by a demon, a demon in a flesh suit, if you will. And on a side note, have you ever had one of those WTF moments where there's a word you've used your whole life and all of a sudden you find out that supposedly it's not a real word? I've always used the word puppeted, but as I was typing my notes for this episode on my iPad, I got the red dotted line under puppeted, so I looked it up and apparently it's not a real word. So it was another, like, you know, mandala effect moment. Did I wake up in an alternate or parallel universe where the word puppeted doesn't exist? Joking, I'm a skeptic, but you get my point. It was weird. Can I lobby to have it made a real word? Uh, maybe I need, like, an example sentence. Puppeted by the spirit of avarice, Jim Baker continued hawking bonus buckets. All right. But anyway, so according to this guy's quote-unquote logic, I use the word loosely, if I'm following correctly, zombies are people who are demonically possessed, and that's why zombies slash celebrities drink human blood. It's the demonic beverage of choice. I like Pepsi Zero. They like human blood. There was a time when I thought diet soda was like the grossest thing on earth. In general, I still think diet soda is pretty nasty. But in the wake of cutting most sugary drinks out of my diet, I've developed a serious Pepsi Zero habit. I'm afraid I'm going to end up a zombie, chugging so much artificial sweetener that I'm essentially, you know, embalming myself. Anyone remember that old 80s horror movie, The Stuff? It was like this nasty yogurt-looking, quote-unquote, stuff, hence the name. I actually found a plot synopsis on uh, Wikipedia. Several railroad workers discover a white cream-like alien substance bubbling out of the ground. These workers find it to be sweet and addictive. Later, the substance, marketed as, quote-unquote, the stuff, is being sold to the general public in containers like ice cream. It is marketed as having no calories and as being sweet, creamy, and filling. The stuff quickly becomes a nationwide craze and drastically hurts the sales of ice cream. Former FBI agent turned industrial saboteur David quote-unquote Moe Rutherford is hired by the leaders of the suffering ice cream industry as well as junk food mogul Charles W quote-unquote chocolate chip Charlie Hobbs to find out exactly what the stuff is and destroy it. Under their commissions, Rutherford conducts an investigation into the stuff. His efforts reveal to his initial horror that the craze for the dessert is far deadlier than anyone had believed. The stuff is actually a living parasitic and possibly sentient organism that gradually takes over the brain. It then mutates those who eat it into bizarre zombie-like creatures before consuming them from the inside and leaving them empty shells of their former selves. I think we need a David Moe Rutherford to look into Pepsi Zero. 
But anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, back to demons and zombies. So as someone who was raised Catholic during the uh, satanic panic, no less, this paranoid idea that you always have to be on guard against demonic influence and that demons can take people over, etc., etc., uh, that's nothing new to me. One of the fringe benefits of being a skeptic is that when you choose to view the world rationally, you can kind of let your hair down and don't have to worry that Beelzebub's around every corner. But defining zombies as people who are demon-possessed or who have surrendered to demonic influence, you know, that's a new one to me. And it's probably too much to ask for logical consistency, but he goes from this definition of zombie to bringing up how the CDC and the military have zombie preparedness plans or programs, which makes me think more of, you know, the George Romero or 28 Days Later kind of zombies, you know, hordes of mindless shambling corpses, or in the case of 28 Days Later, rage-infected freaks swarming the streets. Uh, but I think he mentions in passing that he thinks the CDC creates rather than controls diseases. Uh, so does he think someday all the demon-possessed zombie people are gonna finally get together and take to the streets? Or maybe he thinks the CDC is going to release something that starts uh, like a real-life Walking Dead situation? Who knows? Once again, a seeming lack of logical consistency. But that being said, I will offer the caveat that as a realist who tries not to underestimate humanity's potential or capacity for incompetence and self-destruction, I don't rule out um, the possibility that something nasty and or highly contagious might intentionally or unintentionally make its way out of a lab. The elephant in the room, of course, being COVID. Which I think it's safe to say we still don't know for sure whether it came from a wet or other kind of animal market or possibly did come from a lab. I think the consensus is that it probably didn't come from a lab, but the possibility hasn't been completely ruled out. And uh, for the sake of argument, let's say it did come from a lab, then there's the question whether it was intentional or just due to good old human incompetence. And uh, I didn't plan on going into this, but I think it would be irresponsible of me if I brought up COVID and its, you know, its place of origin, uh, China, as far as we know, and didn't address the problem of anti-Asian hate crimes and general anti-Asian sentiment and bigotry. Not only is it just ugly to blame an individual person for something they had absolutely nothing to do with just because of a shared ethnicity or race, uh, but what logical sense does it make? On what planet does it make sense to blame an Asian person living in America for something that happened on the other side of the world or on another continent? Needless to say, the people demonstrating or displaying this kind of ugly bigotry are probably ignorant in a number of ways. Many of them certainly don't seem to know the difference between one Asian nationality or ethnicity and another. But one thing that hits me as particularly loathsome or egregious is when Chinese Americans are told to go back home, when for many of them, this is probably the only home they've ever known. And in general, speaking broadly as a group, the Chinese have been in America since at least the 1820s. For all you know, the person you're telling to go back home, their family may have been here longer than yours. But with that off my chest, let me climb off my soapbox and get back to talking about demons and zombies. Uh, where was I? 
Yeah, but the demon zombie guy, uh, he cites those preparedness plans as if to add weight or gravitas to his argument or claim that zombies are real. Uh, when most people are probably aware that, yeah, the military and the CDC do have so-called zombie preparedness plans, but they're clearly meant to be tongue-in-cheek. They're supposed to be a fun way of teaching people about real-world emergency preparedness. Yeah, and so as far as the military is concerned, there's something called CONOP 8888. CON Plan 8888, also known as Counter Zombie Dominance, is a U.S. Department of Defense Strategic Command, CONOP, document that describes a plan for defending against zombies. The April 30th, 2011 document depicts fictional scenarios of zombie attacks as a means of training students in military planning. And I'm not sure if it is supposed to be pronounced Con Plan 8888, but that seems a lot easier than Con Plan 8888 or Con Plan 8888. And I'm looking at an article on foreignpolicy.com. It's talking about Con Op 8888. Uh, yeah, so Con Op 8888, drinking game, otherwise known as Counter Zombie Dominance, uh, dated April 30th, 2011, is no laughing matter, and yet of course it is. As its authors note in the document's disclaimer section, and here it is in quotes, this plan was not actually designed as a joke. Military planners assigned to the U.S. Strategic Command in Omaha, Nebraska, during 2009 and 2010, looked for a creative way to devise a planning document to protect citizens in the event of an attack of any kind. The officers, and I read in another article that these were supposedly junior officers uh, who came up with this, the officers used zombies as their muse, and here's a long quote, Planners realize that training examples for plans must accommodate the political fallout that occurs if the general public mistakenly believes that a fictional training scenario is actually a real plan. The authors wrote, adding, Rather than risk such an outcome by teaching our augmentees using the fictional Tunisia or Nigeria scenarios used at Joint Combined Warfighting School, we elected to use a completely impossible scenario that could never be mistaken for a real plan. And I have just four words to offer in response to that. War of the Worlds. Uh, never, never underestimate people's stupidity or gullibility. You know, I like to think of myself as a humanist. I don't like to beat up on humanity too much, but you know, it is what it is. Remember that time uh, when um, people mistook a radio adaptation of a science fiction story as an actual news report? And so as a part of this plan, there were different theoretical zombies that trainees would have to deal with, including chicken zombies. And I kid you not, and I'll read a, a bit more from this foreignpolicy.com article. Although it sounds ridiculous, this is actually the only proven class of zombie that actually exists, the plan states. So-called CZs, or chicken zombies, occur when old hens that can no longer lay eggs are euthanized by farmers, are you listening to this, Russ Ray? With carbon monoxide buried and then clawed their way back to the surface. CZs are simply terrifying to behold and are likely the only to make people become vegetarians in protest to animal cruelty. And that's actually in quotes, Con Op 8888 notes. 
And I know a good deal of you who listen to the show probably don't like it when I go off on vegan tangents, but that is a depressing truth about the uh, the egg industry, as with other animal industries, when um, female animals reach an age where they they're deemed no longer productive enough, um, they're killed. It's the same thing with dairy cows as well. And um, I, I do I try not to go off on the whole vegan thing too much, but you know how could I resist this opening? I didn't expect to read about. Uh, chicken zombies and uh, this concern for animal welfare or whatever couched in this uh, zombie preparedness um, plan of the governments here. And speaking of that, there's also a contingency for vegetarian zombies in the plan. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not making that up. Uh, it's not any wilder than chicken zombies. And in fairness to this conspiracy theory guy that uh, was on Jim Baker talking about demonic zombies, I think Con Plan 8888 was something that was in uh, declassified documents. But at least with the CDC, their uh, zombie preparedness plan was pretty uh, widely publicized. They wanted people to know about it. It's like, so if the demon zombie threat thing is supposed to be the secret thing that requires a conspiracy theorist like himself to get the information out there. Why would the government be publicly promoting that it has, you know, these cute preparedness plans, uh, you know, on its webpage, at least regarding the CDC reverse psychology, I guess, tell them it exists. So they think it doesn't exist. And then when the shit hits the fan and they realize it's all real, uh, it'll be too late and they'll be wishing they bought some of those slop filled Baker survival buckets. And speaking of that, I was looking at those Baker buckets again today while researching this episode. It's like a hundred bucks for a single four gallon food bucket or what passes for food. Uh, I remember, and I think I've mentioned this before, the drunken peasants ordered a bucket from Baker, a bucket from Baker, just so they could jokingly taste test it on the show. They ordered it and it never even arrived. And it was like uh, 80 bucks, I think. Good old Jim Baker, you know, keeping the grift going. And I think Baker once said on the show as a kind of selling point that the buckets can also function as chairs. Um... <laughs> And then for a while now, I think Tim Pool has been criticized for getting in on the survival bucket grift. I could be wrong, but I think it may have specifically been a place called My Patriot Supply, where they offer a four-week quote-unquote emergency food supply for the low, low price of $247. Whatever happened to just slowly accumulating a stockpile of canned food in your basement? Now what? You're supposed to buy overpriced buckets from televangelists and beanie-clad internet journalists? The world is going to hell in a handbasket. Or the hell in a baker bucket. But zombies are always fun to talk about. <laughs> Back to zombies. And I think the reason why they've been uh, done to death, no pun intended, or why they're so popular or have this kind of enduring appeal is because they resonate with us on a number of levels. They speak to our fear and maybe even our morbid fascination with death, uh, to our own mortality, uh, the seemingly innate or primal fear or revulsion we have of corpses. They function as societal metaphors, our obsession with consumerism. 
I think that's one of the themes at the heart of Romero's 1978 Dawn of the Dead. In droves, the reanimated corpses of the dead instinctively return to the shopping mall. In a sense, we're the zombies, constantly consuming in an attempt to forget or fill the nagging emptiness of our lives. And I know I'm getting kind of dark here, but allow me to continue. And, uh, and even though zombies are unnatural in a sense, I think they can also function as this kind of symbol of unstoppable nature or the unstoppable forces of existence. Uh, you know, whether it be nature, the vagaries of existence, uh, our own mortality, uh, you, there's some things you can't escape. You know, it just keeps coming and coming and eventually it's going to wash over you. Uh, if that makes sense. I know I'm kind of kind of reaching, kind of groping in the dark here, but there's some kind of truth I'm parring at. And in between working on this episode, I actually binge-watched the first season of Attack on Titan, and the Titans in that are a lot like zombies. If you're not familiar, the basic plot of Attack on Titan is that these giant, naked, sometimes skinless humanoid creatures begin attacking this human civilization or society that's protected by a concentric series of walls. And much like zombies, they can't be reasoned with, and they're driven by a blind, instinctual hunger for human flesh. And for me, a big part of what makes the show is the creepy nature of the Titans. A lot of them look like normal humans, like some of them have male pattern baldness or pot bellies, that kind of thing. But the faces are kind of frozen in these various creepy expressions. Uh, so imagine like a 30-foot naked balding accountant with a creepy grin suddenly, you know, picks up your mom and bites her in half or something. It's pretty wild. Uh, and apologies again for the dark tone of the show, or excessively dark. This show often can get a little dark. Uh, but I was reading that the guy who created Attack on Titan, uh, that he used to work in Internet Cafe... And one day, an angry customer grabbed him by the lapels, I think. And supposedly, in that moment, he felt the fear of what it's like to be attacked by someone you can't reason with. And that was, I guess, at least in part, the impetus or inspiration for the nature of the Titans in the story. But yeah, zombies can function as a symbol or metaphor on a whole bunch of levels. Uh, but I'll do one more story, and I didn't plan it this way, but uh, this one involves fantasy or science fiction too. And you probably know I've been trying to get away from politics a bit, but I couldn't resist this one. Apparently Fox News' Neil Cavuto, or is it Fox Business? I same crap. Uh, but he was upset that the villain of Godzilla versus Kong is a rich guy. Uh, I'll play this clip here. Or what if I told you the real villain in, uh, you know, this whole Godzilla versus Kong movie isn't Godzilla, and, and it's not Kong. It's this guy named Walter Simmons from the movie. He's a billionaire who runs a company called Apex Cybernetics. The name even sounds evil, Apex Cybernetics. <laughs> but my, my point is this, this is not the first movie that has characterized the villain as a businessman or a rich guy. Again, I don't want to give away what's going on here, but these two are fine. Godzilla, you know, Kong, they're fine, all right? I, uh, it, it's, it's what this evil billionaire is crafting that's not fine. But I've seen it again and again, 
and it's funny, he's making fun of the, uh, the name of the company for being too on the nose, but sometimes real world companies do have evil names. Uh, I always think of a uh, Blackwater, you know, there are these, um, military contractors who are kind of abusing their power and acting violently and off the leash, you know, and, uh, the name of the damn company was Blackwater. That name always sounded uh, sinister to me. But upon listening to that clip again, I see that Cavuto actually brings up what was uh, what was going to be my argument against his gripe. Uh, so he pulled a fill. I usually don't talk about myself in the third person. Uh, very clever, Mr. Cavuto. Uh, that's my trigger strategy. When I'm making an argument, I'll often bring up what I think will be the criticisms or counter arguments from the other side. And I do that for two reasons. On the one hand, it's uh, me trying to be intellectually fair or honest, taking different points of view or arguments into consideration, testing the merit of my own ideas by exposing them to the kind of devil's advocate point of view. Um, but to be honest, it's also kind of a strategic or defensive thing too. My way of trying to take the air out of or diffuse or defeat a potential counter argument or criticism by bringing them up and dealing with them myself ahead of time. And so Neil Cavuto admits that Godzilla vs. Kong isn't the first movie to feature a wealthy antagonist or paint a big corporation as the bad guy. And like I was saying, I was going to bring up that point before he uh, made it for me. Uh, I was going to say, you know, what about Robocop? Uh, not Robocop himself, but the evil corporation there. Uh, the Terminator movies. Peter Whelan from the Alien prequels. Uh, I'm a big Resident Evil fan. Well, a fan of the games, not the movies. But of course you have uh, Umbrella. And... Um, we were just talking about zombies. Most zombie movies have the government and or some rich corporation as the bad guys. Uh, the stuff. <laughs> uh, that's another one. And there's probably a bunch of uh, ones that just aren't coming to me right now. Uh, oh, yeah. Dr. Evil. There's one. Uh, but he didn't really grasp inflation. And I'm not sure how rich he actually was. Um but, you know, now the fact that other movies have used uh, the same trope doesn't say anything about whether it's right or wrong to employ said trope. But I'm like, really? You're gonna whinge about, you know, the bad guy in a Godzilla movie, Slow News Day? It's like, well, we're we supposed to break out the world's smallest violin for all the misunderstood billionaires in the world. Uh, and he seems miffed that Godzilla and Kong, in contrast, are more fairly portrayed, neither one being painted as the villain of the piece, so to speak. And I don't think that's anything new either. Both Godzilla and King Kong are both these kind of titanic forces of nature. Sometimes they're painted as sympathetic or even heroic. Other times they're kind of anti-heroes. Sometimes, like I was saying, especially in the case of Godzilla, he's kind of this titanic force of nature. Maybe he's kind of uh, on your side. Maybe he's not. And before someone calls me out on it, like I was saying, you got to beat the critics to it. Uh, yeah, Godzilla is also supposed to be a kind of metaphor for nuclear war, etc. Godzilla is a Japanese character conceived of in the wake of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
And as the original story goes, I believe he was supposed to be this terrible water-dwelling monster awakened and strengthened by uh, nuclear radiation. Uh, and so there's a lot you can read into that. And I think, isn't Godzilla, his name is supposed to be pronounced Gojira, I think, or something like that. And his name is actually kind of a portmanteau of uh, the Japanese for, uh, for whale and, and gorilla, I think, strangely enough. And to be honest, uh, I tried to watch Godzilla vs. Kong twice and fell asleep both times. Um, yeah, it's like the fights were pretty cool. Uh, they were, I mean, in this day and age, what else do you expect? You know, really heavy on CGI. Um, and sometimes, you know, CGI is detailed and as advanced as it is, it still it doesn't feel quite real at times. Other times, you know, it's pretty convincing. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's actually, to be fair to the movie, there was a similar thing when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I really loved, like, super old Japanese super robot cartoons. Uh, you know, stuff like... Um, you guys probably won't even know, like Grandizer and Star Avengers, uh, Transor Z, of course, Voltron. Voltron was originally a Japanese uh, character called Go Lion. They took the uh, Japanese anime and repackaged it as uh, Voltron. But I remember like watching that stuff as a kid and watching Godzilla movies as a, as a kid or even King Kong movies. The human parts bored me so much. I'm like, come on, get to the part where the giant robot comes out or get to the part where the giant lizard erupts out of the sea and starts, you know, breaking shit up or whatever. <laughs> and so kind of in a similar way, yeah, the human aspects of the movie just kind of bored me and I drifted off. I literally fell asleep both times I tried to watch that movie. Um, but anyway, I guess with that, I'll call this episode a wrap. Uh, as always, thanks everyone for listening. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page, can follow the show on Twitter, can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe we're doing that now. If you want to support what I do here monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash the weekend doubt and help support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time. Mm -hmm.